I was uh, struck while Yanta was talking about his uh, all those moms all over the place, and I was talking uh, about my mom, who lives a long ways from here, and so we were talking about moms all over. Thought, wow, that's really international. Uh, here at International Bible Church. I, was, I don't know why, but uh, today it just occurred to me that uh, there's people watching and listening uh, literally all over the world, and uh, what a great opportunity that is. <clears throat> here at International Bible Church, we have, a, we have a slogan sort of thing, I guess, and we say we're... we're Bible-based, gospel-centered, and multicultural. And so we have that expression in the middle of that, gospel-centered. So I wanted to ask this question, what is the gospel? Now, in, uh, in the Papiamento language, they, they don't have a word like we have in English, gospel. They say, bon noticia, good news. And that is literally what the, the Bible word means. Euangelion, it's the Greek word that means good news. So if uh, someone came to you and announced the birth of their child, that would be a gospel, that would be a good news. So what there so you know we get good news in various ways all the time maybe you, maybe you uh maybe you had a promotion at work and your boss said we're giving you the the job and you go that's good news if you were an ancient greek speaker you'd use the word euangelion where we get the word evangelize in english from that very word uh, and it means good message. Uh, Angelo's name, it just means angel. An angel is a messenger. They deliver news. They take news from the source and they deliver it to the listener. And if you put the little Greek prep, the little Greek uh, modifier on the front, EU, you, it becomes good news. But what is the good news that we're talking about when we say we're gospel-centered? What is the gospel? It's interesting because you can ask Christians to tell you what the gospel is, and they have a hard time telling you what it is. I, I just want you to stop and think for a second. Could you... Tell me what the gospel is in a sentence. What's the gospel? Well, you know, there's a passage in the Bible that begins with this. This statement. This is the gospel by which you are saved. And then it goes on to tell you exactly what the gospel is. The, uh, the, the passage I'm talking about is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now, we're talking about this because in the book of John, we're, we left off last Sunday at the very moment Jesus died. He said, Tetelestai, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. Well, here's the passage I'm referring to from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you didn't really believe. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received. All of that is, here is the gospel by which you are saved. And then he says this, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, here's the gospel in a sentence. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So if you ever need to know the answer to that question, what is the gospel? That is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Now, we're looking at this in the book of John. And uh, we see this in chapter 19. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished to Telestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away, so they'd die faster. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with Christ. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, and he who was, has seen has testified. John's saying, I, the one who's telling you this saw it happen. And his testimony is true, and he knows what he's telling, the, that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe that Jesus died. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. 
And again, another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now you might recall that in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he died and was buried. Why? And here, you know, they kind of make a point out of that he was buried. And the point is that he really died. The man Jesus died, and he was really dead. And John goes to some trouble here to be sure that we notice that. First of all, the soldiers are going to speed up the process of crucifixion by breaking the legs. It's unbelievable brutality, but anyway, by breaking the legs of the men they've crucified. But when they come to Jesus, they discover it is not necessary because he is dead already. This reminds me of what Jesus said, that no one's taking his life from him, he's laying it down. And it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But in any case, they uh, come to him, they don't break his legs. But one of them pierces his side with the spear. And we find out that both of these things are fulfillments of Scripture. Now, these soldiers never paid any attention to the ancient Hebrew Scriptures. And yet they are fulfilling these things. And then Joseph and Nicodemus come and they take the body of Christ and they put him in the tomb. The point of this is he really died. And that this is according to the scriptures. If you look at Isaiah chapter 53, famous passage in the Old Testament about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, 
smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. So Jesus died according to the scriptures. You can see a direct correlation uh, with Zechariah. Yeah. Zechariah chapter 10, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 10. where we read this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me, this is the Lord speaking, whom they have pierced. And that's a specific scripture that is fulfilled when the soldier pierces the side of Christ. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So you see that scripture specifically fulfilled in John 19.37. In Hebrews chapter 2, you read about how Messiah must, according to scripture, participate in death. And uh, in this case, Hebrews is referring specifically to Psalm 22. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 9, we do, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. This, that's a quotation. Psalm 22, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. 
Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, died. He really died. Now, that doesn't sound like good news. How is that good news? Well, we've really already read all about it, how that's good news. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the, the good news part of this is in the very small phrase, for our sins. He died for our sins. We saw this in Isaiah 53. Our, he died to provide healing. Our sins were laid on him. Our transgressions he bore. Our griefs he bore for our sins he died. And that's what makes his death good news. What does it mean for our sins he died? Well, it's described right here in, in Hebrews to make satisfaction for the sins of the people, to make propitiation. That's a $4 word. What's propitiation? Well, it means to satisfy some demand. The demand in this case is the demand of righteousness. And we sin, and God is righteous. So God's righteousness demands justice for sin anywhere, anytime. The God must satisfy justice, but we are sinners. So what does it mean to, be a, to, to sin? The word sin means literally to miss the mark, like you were aimed at a target and you, you didn't hit it. The righteousness demands a certain standard of living in every respect. Righteousness demands a certain standard of thinking, feeling, believing, acting. And the scripture says, we miss. If we, when we aim at it, we don't hit it. There's a famous verse that says, all have sinned. You know this verse, right? For all have sinned and fall short. Fall short. What does that mean, to fall short? 
well, it's like you shot at the target and your arrow landed before it hit the target, fell short. And you might say, fell short of what? Well, you know the verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, human beings were created in the likeness of God in order to bear the image of God and to spread the glory of God throughout the earth. That was the target we miss and fall short. Well, God's righteousness demands satisfaction for our sin. It's in the garden, God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what his righteousness demands for sin. But here we read, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. His death satisfies all the penalty for our failure. We stand before God clothed in his righteousness by his death. In this way, we read in Romans chapter 3, that same chapter where we read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we also read that in this way, God vindicates himself. How can God be righteous and merciful toward us, the unrighteous? It would be unrighteous of God to forgive sin apart from the satisfaction of justice by the death of Christ, our representative before God. So it's in our union with him that we are made righteous, that we have his righteousness imputed to us because of his death. That's good news. But I'm not sure it would be good news that Jesus died if Jesus did not rise. In fact, I'm quite sure it wouldn't have been. Because the thing that shows all of that to be true is that he does not remain dead, but overcomes death. If, if we're united to Christ and Christ just dies, well, then we just die. But Christ does not just die, he is raised, he is risen indeed. We see that in 1 Corinthians, yeah, which we read. This is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to to the scriptures. Well, that's what we read, you know, in John chapter 20. 
we transition from he was dead and buried at the end of chapter 19 to the first day, and on the first day they come. On the first day they come to prepare his body, and his body is not there. So these women have a kind of a panic, and they go to the apostles and they report that his body is not there. Someone's taken it, they say. So, Peter and the other disciple, which we believe to be John, since he's not named, Peter and the other disciple went, and they were going to the tomb. They were running together, and the other disciple was faster than Peter. I think it's funny that John mentions that he's faster than Peter. (laughs) But anyway, he's faster than Peter, so he gets there first. He stoops and looks in, and he saw. The linen wrappings. Now remember, there's a hundred pounds of preservatives in these wrappings. And there they are, empty. Now, if someone was going to take the body of Jesus, would they unwrap him first? But anyway, they find him there. They didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and entered the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw, now get this, he saw and believed. Believed. Then John explains, for as yet, I would take that as like this, for until that moment, they did not understand the Scripture. Until that moment, they did not understand the Scripture. Now, that isn't because they hadn't heard it. Because Jesus had been talking about the Scripture and applying it to himself, that he needed to die and be raised. He'd been talking about that for months. But until this moment, they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. John's eyes are suddenly... Oh, oh, and he believed. And this, I think, is interesting because of what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. He died and was buried according to the Scripture, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. Paul keeps talking about how it's according to the Scripture. And here in the book of John, we keep having these references to the Scripture. According to the Scripture. If we were to continue reading in the book of Isaiah, from where I left off a moment ago, 
in Isaiah 53, we stopped in the middle of verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, that's the good news, the death of Christ is a guilt offering. The penalty for my guilt is, in, is paid, is taken in the death of Christ. An offering for the sins of others. Then it says this, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will, ju will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. <laughs> so he died, but then he is rewarded afterwards. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He doesn't remain dead in Isaiah. He doesn't remain dead in any passage of Scripture. We read from Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, to Sheol, the place of death. Uh, we could read about this. We, we saw this referred to in Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about he died, but he's not dead. And it refers to him proclaiming uh, good news to his brothers. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, those who believe in him. And, but he died, but he's not dead. And it refers to Psalm 22, where you have a reference to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> we already looked at Zechariah 12.10 which refers to the day of resurrection. Well, there's no resurrection if he doesn't die, but he doesn't stay dead. Jesus himself referred to the book of Jonah. He said, I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. And he uses the book of Jonah as a foreshadowing to himself, and he says, on the third day he will be raised from the dead. So the whole story of Jonah being three days in the belly of the fish. Well, that's Jonah connects to Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul. Jonah makes an allusion to that text in Jonah chapter 2. So, not only Jesus claimed Jonah to be a reference to resurrection, especially resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. Jonah himself did that. So, <clears throat> uh, we can also read in Psalm... By the way, there, uh, most of these scriptures I'm referring to, there, there's a... There's a list of these in, in the bulletin. 
Psalm 68, verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Paul quotes that verse in Ephesians chapter 4 with reference to Christ in his resurrection ascending to the throne of God and taking his people, his captives, captive and distributing gifts in the life of the church. Paul uses this text in Psalm 68 to refer to all of those things. In, in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to, my father, to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. It's interesting, Jesus' focus at this moment is on his imminent ascension to the Father, his return to the Father. You know, that's what he was talking about since chapter 13, right? He's been talking about, I'm, I'm, go I'm leaving, I'm going back to the Father. And he says, it's good if I go back to the Father because then I'll send the Spirit and that, that will be good news for you. The very life of Christ himself will come to dwell in the life of the Christian and in the church the body of Christ. I'm, I'm trying to give you an idea of how this is the eternal plan of God, this good news. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, God has been talking about that since the very beginning. Even in the story of Abraham and his offering of Isaac, there's a shadow, a foreshadow, of the death and resurrection of Christ. And we read in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham believed by faith, Abraham offered Isaac believing, do you remember what he believed? That God would raise Isaac from the dead. And then you have the substitution of the ram a foreshadow of Christ. Isaac's a shadow of Christ. The ram's a shadow of Christ. It all points to Christ. The gospel is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus himself said, Abraham was looking forward to my day. Right there in the book of John. Right there in the book of John, he says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Moses wrote about me. The whole Bible is this gospel message. So when you read 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul says to you, this is the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. You are reading a one-sentence summary of the entire Bible. And that's what we mean when we say here we're Bible-based and gospel-centered. Because we're Bible-based, we're gospel-centered. Because this is the message of the Bible. Now, 
I guess uh, you don't really have to make much of an argument for how is the resurrection good news. I mean, if someone comes back from the dead, that sounds like good news. But why does it matter to you? Well, for this, you could go on and read in Romans chapter 6, where we read, if we, if we were united with him in his death, we will be united with him in his resurrection. And Paul goes on to say, this is why Christians stop sinning. The reason you stop sinning as a Christian is not because you understand more how much God hates sin, but because you understand by the work of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the Word of God that you can because the life of Christ you've been united to and so you're called to walk in newness of life not called to walk in, under heavier burden of law but in fresh power so you offer yourself to God as an instrument of his righteousness now. Why? Because you can. And if you can, why on earth would you not? And this is because of your union with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. And I think you better include by the ministry of the very spirit of Christ in your soul you have this life that you did not have, except that it was purchased by the death of Christ and granted by the resurrection of Christ to you and to us in the church. You could read, that's all in Romans 6, by the way, you could read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What an amazing text of Scripture this is. He says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Throughout the writings of Paul, you see this. He sees himself as participating in the death of Christ, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. As in, in union with Christ, I've died and been raised. So then later on in this chapter, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And new means in this instance, entirely new. The old things died, passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. How can a righteous God not count trespasses against someone? Because he's counted them against Christ. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, that is, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the good news. That's the good news. All of that is tied together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read the rest of the chapter. We just read the first few verses. The gospel, the good news is Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And then he goes on to talk about the resurrection. And that's the, that's the chapter that ends, Where, O death, is your sting? It is finished. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's good news. It's the gospel of John. To say to you, Jesus died and he really was dead. He really did suffer what you should have suffered in your place. And he rose again on the third day. And the apostles come and they see, they look in and it says, they believed because up until then it it just hadn't actually dawned on them that that's actually what the scriptures teach that the messiah would die and be raised from the dead as a guilt offering for our sins tetelestai it is finished this is good news for you this is good news for you, even if you have recognized this good news since you were a little child like me. When my mom led me to Christ when I was five years old, I don't need this good news any less now than I did then. Because I still have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Spirit is at work in my life, but I still am in the struggle. I'm still walking in the flesh. I still have a problem. So I want to say, whatever your frustration or failure in today or this week, whatever that is, and it's something, some of, for some of us, the the main, our main failure is that we're not recognizing our own sinfulness. Because we don't really apply the standard of God like God applies it. But in any case, whatever sin has crept into your life, rest in this good news, Jesus died for your sin. And if you've been a Christian for a hundred years, you need to know that as bad as you did the first day. Because that is where the power to change lies, is in your rest in the finished work of Christ. Jesus Christ died for your sin. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In him, your sentence has been carried out already. And you are free to live in newness of life. Life in fellowship with the living God because he has reconciled you to the living God. I was watching an interview of this guy, famous guy, rock star, 
from my generation, like the 70s and 80s, this famous rock star has become a Christian. He actually grew up in a Christian house. His father was a pastor, and then he refers to himself as a prodigal son, like he went about as far away from it as you can go, and, but now the Lord has brought him back in. He said something very interesting in this interview. He said, uh, some, the interviewer asked him, well, what do you mean when you say accept Christ? And he said, well, I believe we don't accept Christ. We accept the fact that he has accepted us. I'm going to say that again because I think it's really an important thought. We don't really accept Christ. We accept the fact that he has accepted us. If somebody needs to accept somebody, it's God that needs to accept me, not the other way around. The one who's not acceptable is me, not him. And so what we have in Christ is the deliverance of the promise of God to deal with our sin and make us again acceptable before God. And that is the gospel, the good news. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. Father, we thank you for this message of life, that you have made us alive again in Christ. Lord, I pray for the listeners that this would be real in their hearts and that it would change their lives like it can. Thank you for, the, for giving the Spirit to enable this new life in us. Help us to walk in newness of life. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.